Well, here it is, ladies and gentlemen. Once again, it's time to go inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Savalero, and with me always, always to the chair to my right, is my good friend, Kelly Grayson. How y'all doing? It's great to be here, looking out on a sea of, of bright and shiny EMS faces. That's why he's the best color man in the business, ladies and gentlemen. I want to remind you that this episode of Inside EMS is sponsored by Pulsera. Learn more about how you can build a regional system of care for free at www.pulsera.com slash EMS. And Kelly, I got to tell you, I mean, we're really excited to be here at the initial assessment conference in Lake Placid, New York. Let the listeners hear you. Go ahead. Let them hear you. Oh, four four on, people. Four people. Thank you very much. Four people. <laughs> so, you know, Kelly, I think uh, this is my first time here. Yep. This is your fourth or fifth time here. Fourth, fourth year. And uh, this is really an incredible conference. And one of the things that we thought would be cool for this edition of Inside EMS is uh, Ask the Experts. And uh, Kelly and I usually do kind of listener mail sometimes where, you know, folks will send emails in and they'll ask us questions about their career or the career field. And we got a microphone set up here uh, up front and we want to answer your questions. But we really want to kind of overview the, the job that's happening here at the initial assessment conference, Kelly. This is the 10th year that this 10th has been going on. Yeah. And, uh, you know, speaking to Travis Howe, he's kind of the head honcho here running the show with, with his team and supporting cast. Uh, I asked him the first year, he said there was about 68 people here for the first year, and now 10 years later, we're about uh, four or 500, and, and that really is a lot uh, when you think about the growth of a conference. Yeah, growing, growing by leaps and bounds. The four years I've been here, the conference has been better each and every year. They keep adding new social events and networking. They, they keep adding more great world-class speakers and, and and a broad variety of topics. You've got everything from BLS to critical care topics, uh, pharmacology reviews, and the whole nine yards. It's, and, oh, and, and they, they scraped the bottom of the barrel and got a keynote speaker named Sevalero this year. Um, you can't have all good stuff. I mean, he, he really <laughs> likes me. He really likes me, everybody. But, uh, so, you know, Kelly, I, I, one of the things that I think we want to talk about, too, is that you, you mentioned there are some really great speakers mm -hmm. here, some national caliber speakers who are really imparting some really great wisdom. And, you know, I know that you've got a couple classes that you're mm -hmm. doing here. And, you know, you did a, a new lecture. It was on, uh, it's called The Wrong Way to Accessorize. It was on accessory pathways in uh, cardiac conduction, um, ventricular pre-excitation syndromes. A little bit of cardiology geekery for you. I, I figured I'd get my Tom Boothelay on. Yeah, well, you're, 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 you're channeling Tom Boothelay. <laughs> yeah, I don't I'm, know I'm not near as smart as Tom, but I, I did my best with it. So it got good reception. You know, what do you think were the high points of that lecture then? So when you think about, I mean, I think cardiology is one of those subjects that give people a little bit of trepidation. I mean, they, mm -hmm. they put all this stuff on us, you know, where we think about anatomy, where we think about physiology. Then we've got to think about treatment and management. But then we've got to learn this, this you know, electrophysiology and mm -hmm. how to read. And, and it's one of those topics that I think give people a little bit of challenge as they learn it. But when you think about the lecture that you did, you know, maybe give a little bit to the listeners as an overview of uh, what that class was about. Well, I, th I think the biggest take-home point was is one of the things we're taught about accessory pathways in, in cardiac arrhythmias is limited to Wolf-Parkinson-White. And we teach people this classic superficial view of Wolf-Parkinson-White that it's a, it, it has a widened QRS complex and a narrow PR interval and, and delta waves, when in reality, 
the most common arrhythmias you see resulting from Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome have a narrow QRS uh, and no delta waves. It's orthodromic reentry tachycardia. And, and you say that 10 times real fast. But I can't say it one time real time fast. <laughs> it's, uh, that's by far the most common tachyarrhythmia associated with WPW. And, and the, the things we've taught people to look for are actually the more uncommon manifestations of WPW. And we, we, most programs don't cover at all some of the other uh, uh, accessory pathway tachycardias that cause ventricular pre-excitation like Lounganong-Levine syndrome and Mahame fiber tachycardia. And we touched upon those today as well. And, and uh, EMS treatment of those types of tachycardias in the field. And, uh, I, th- I think people brought some, some good stuff away from it, from well, some I mean, good I, it, messages. But it was the first class of the day, and I think that, you know, there was free booze last night, so <laughs> it was probably a good lecture to sleep in. But, you know, you, you're bringing up these, you know, you, we're talking about uh, Wolf Parkinson's White, and so, I mean, we're not seeing that very often in the field, though. The so when we think the, about the, the development of this education, I mean, I think it's good to hear, but where's the practical use that they're going to be able to see that in their career and really, you know, kind of, uh, you know, make that something they've got to be aware of? Well, I think we see it a lot more often than we appreciate, but we didn't realize we saw it because we're not educated on the subject. If you look at, for example, Mahame fiber tachycardia, it looks like a standard wide complex tachycardia. Now, luckily, the treatment for it is very similar to wide complex tachycardia treatment uh, from a conventional uh, conduction pathway or simple VTAC. However, uh, I, I don't know how many I may have encountered that actually were uh, a Mahame fiber tachycardia or perhaps um, uh, ventricular pre-excitation WPW with AFib, for example, an, an antidromic tachycardia. Uh, probably the biggest clue that you're dealing with an accessory pathway is the rate is generally a lot faster than garden variety VTAC would be. So. That's, you know, looking back on my career, I don't know how many of those patients I probably missed because I was ignorant as to the, the electrophysiology of what I was dealing with. So when you think about this now as, as a process, and I know we're kind of getting off the mm-hmm. topic of talking about the, the, you know, the conference and some of the things that are going on here, but when you think about the development of your cardiology knowledge, I think we kind of do this all wrong in school. I mean, we really should have some type of a, a initial education and then throughout our career, we need to be able to have, you know, a, a middle range or an intermediate knowledge um, course and then an advanced level course. Because I think you bring up a really good point here where you talk about that you may have seen these more often in your career, but without the knowledge of what you were seeing, you yeah. were looking for the textbook, you know, AFib or the textbook ATAC or the textbook. And, you know, we start to see these other things and we're like, well, what the heck is this? And, you know, so when we think about the development of your cardiology knowledge, do you have a thought about what's the best way to kind of gain this and move this forward? I think it's just part of a natural progression in your growth, uh, in your knowledge base as a provider. You're a rule follower uh, early on. You learn the rules for each uh, cardiac rhythm, you know, the P, P wave, PR interval, QRS width, rate, uh, ST segment and T waves, you you memorize those rules and learn how to apply them. But as you learn more, you you become more appreciative of nuance and all the things that weren't covered in those rules and and, uh, no longer becomes a a kind of black black or white algorithmic style thinking. You you start to appreciate the, uh, the, the subtleties in between. I think that's something that comes along 
if it's some it's a, a topic that you're passionate about and you you work at, at continuing your knowledge yeah one of the things that i used to do when i taught paramedic school mm-hmm. which the students just hated they were not a fan <laughs> of mine was i used to give them all the you know all the durations and they had to draw the wave so rather than interpret the wave and say what's the pr interval i just used to give them the durations and they had to draw the wave to, you know, as part of that test, and they hated me. Oh, well, well, then, then they're in a very wide fraternity then. Oh, that's but, really nice, ladies and gentlemen. No, let's shift gears. You gave a couple of leadership talks today. You gave a leadership talk this morning, uh, and you gave a, a, a stellar keynote yesterday. Tell us about, uh, tell us the take-home message from your leadership talk this morning. Well, this morning we talked about the 10 most common leadership mistakes. And I don't know if you know this, but leaders make mistakes too. The good leaders admit that they make mistakes, too. I think that that's where the challenge is. But one of the things that we have to realize is that, you know, we've been sold this bill of goods that mistakes are bad and failures are are bad and we shouldn't have them. And really, when we think about our wisdom, you know, experience comes from mistakes and mistakes come from lack of experience. We've got to be able to learn the things that we need to learn based on the failures and based on, you know, the mistakes and the errors that we make, you know, and and it's okay. But I wanted to point out this morning the 10 most common leadership mistakes. And, you know, it goes from delegation of authority to not making time to free your employees, you know, for not continuing to learn. And, you know, these are the things that as a leader, and John Maxwell has this great book out called The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. And I think it's a great foundational book. And rule number one is the law of the lid, which means that I can only teach, if if my leadership is on a scale of 1 to 10, is a 6, I can only bring my organization to a 5. And I've got to continually learn to continually grow, so not only can I grow my organization, but I I could also grow the members of my workforce, otherwise they're going to outpace those leaders. But, you know, being able now to talk about, you know, the, the most common leadership mistakes is really important in your leadership development training. It's not just learning about communication. It's not learning about conflict resolution. It's not learning about servant leadership and emotional intelligence. But you've got to be able to look at the lessons from best practices, from what's going on in the career field, you know, from, you know, reading and learning. Yeah, yeah and maybe you read and, and read something online. You say, well, I think that's cool, but I don't think that fits into my leadership style. And I think that that's okay. But we've got to be able to have this continual professional and personal development that I think sometimes we forget about. Yeah, we, and we do. And one of the things I've gleaned from, from our, our many arguments over the last five years is that leadership is a verb, not a noun. It's something that you practice, right. uh, and, and, and it's a choice that you exercise every day, not just, uh, just not a, an, an abstract noun that, that really has uh, no application. Right. And, and, you know, that really is. I mean, I I define leadership as influence. If we can't influence anyone, we can't lead them. And one of the things that you have to think about is regardless of where you are in the organization, you could be the janitor, you can be an EMT, you can be, you know, a supervisor. You have the opportunity to influence somebody. And if you can do that, then you're a leader. Yesterday in the keynote, Kelly, we talked about you know, developing yourself personally and professionally. We don't take the time that we need necessary to grow ourselves to the next level. How, how did we get to where we are today? You know, w- whether we're a paramedic, whether we're a supervisor, 
It, it took us some training. It took us some dedication. It took us some commitment, perseverance, persistence, and all those other words that kind of go into this. And then when we attain the goal that we wanted to attain, we forgot that we can keep going, that it, we don't have to stop at the level that we are. Now, now we get into a point of being complacent. Now we get into a point of being stagnant. Now we get into a point of saying, I don't know how to go from point A to point B, and it has to be a continual process. Well, let's pause here to take a quick break and talk about Pulsera. Pulsera provides a real-time communication network across entire regions, and it's free to EMS. The Pulsera platform, built on the power of mobile technology, unites the right clinicians at the right time for the right patient, providing transparency and streamlined communication. Simply create a dedicated patient channel, build the team, and communicate using audio, video, instant messaging, data, images, and key benchmarks. Any patient, any condition, every time. Oh, and did we mention it's free to EMS? For more information, visit pulsera.com slash EMS. That's P-U-L-S-A-R-A dot com slash EMS. I guess we got a question, so how about that? Travis Howe is going to read the question for us. This, this um, uh, wonderful uh, lady back here, she was too shy to come up and talk to you two, but... Uh, Kelly's we don't in, buy. Kelly's intimidating. I understand that. It's, yeah, it's, I think it's the good looks. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so the question, it's a great question, and uh, here it is. In many EMS systems, providers have to lock, work long hours in order to make a living. They do long shifts back-to-back, which can result in burnout and health issues. How does an agency leader balance staffing needs with ensuring employee self-care? Let me take it first from, from a grunt standpoint. Because I've been there and I've done that. I work the 4872s. I work a 24-hour shift now. Uh, and there's frequently n- nights when I, I get no sleep. Um, I found that in my career, you an agency can treat a person like crap and pay them well, and they'll retain people. They can pay a person well and treat them like crap. They'll retain people. But you can't treat them like crap and pay them like crap at the same time they're going to vote with their feet and they're going to go elsewhere. And there is a cap on how much EMS agencies can pay people. And as long as we are dependent upon fee for transport and and CMS reimbursement schedules, uh, the revenue pool that we drink from is is a very finite pool. So there's a limited profit margin, especially in for-profit EMS agencies. But that's not to say that within that that business model you can't still treat your employees well what i would say is is that real tangible benefits that show your appreciation like fatigue mitigation policies and procedures you know being able to call for downtime and say i need crew rest and not subject to second guessing by supervisors and dispatch uh showing your employees that that you uh are willing to empower them to to take care of their own safety uh, and you're not going to second guess on because you recognize that they are the most valuable resource of your agency those kind of things go a long long way even if they can't pay me more if they at least show me some tangible evidence that they care about my welfare i'm a much happier employee now as a leader chris how do you approach that sort of thing you know, I think that there's a couple of things that go into this question that are really important. And I think you hit some of the, you know, some of the periphery of uh, where we talk about pay 
and where we talk about uh, you know safety, calling for downtime. I took from the crux of this question that people are having to work too much to make ends meet. Yeah. So they're having to work multiple overtime shifts. They're having to work, you know, uh, you know, in addition to their regular schedule, and that's where they're getting fatigued, and that's where the challenges are coming. I think from a leadership standpoint, we've got to think about what do we need most. And we've got to be able to find a way to pay our employees what they are worth. You know, when we send a $1,500 ambulance bill out the door, but CMS only reimburses us $427, how are we really going to make those ends meet? We've got to find ways that we can help our employees get the hours that they need to be uh, successful at home. But also, we've got to think about their work-life balance. We've got to think about those safety issues. Kelly, you and I have talked about on this show hundreds of times, probably, of where fatigue may have been the issue in ambulance collision. Mm -hmm. And if we're not paying attention to those things, and if we're not making the decisions that have to be made to ensure that our workforce is making the money that they can and and still stay safe... I think the EMS leaders are culpable in those accidents. Yeah, and and the government is going to wind up making those safety decisions for us. And raise your hand if government regulation ever made anything easier or simpler. But I think it was a really great question, so thank you very much for uh, answering it. And and if you have any more, please just step up to the mic and we're happy to take your question. But but it brings up the issue, Mm -hmm. Kelly, when we think about safety, when we think about, you know, sleep deprivation you know you talk about it you said it just now mm-hmm. where you now work 24-hour shifts and uh, a lot of times you don't get any rest and you and I have talked on the mornings where you've been up all night yeah is it time to do away with the 24-hour shift I I think the economic reality of, of reimbursement in EMS as it stands right now under our current model it's probably going to be hard to do away with 24-hour shifts altogether. However... Why? Why I, is it? Because if you work at a... Well, if you would let me finish. <laughs> um, <clears throat> some agencies are, are very low-volume agencies. Uh, they don't run a lot. But then you're not staying hours. up all night. But That's right. So um, your 24-hour shifts ought to be based upon unit hour utilization and time on task and... and once you get above a certain threshold for, for uh, system demand and, and, and how busy your truck is, then I think that, that those 24-hour shifts should be converted to 12-hour shifts. That's, that's how my company does it. Um, all the 24-hour uh, shifts at our agency are low-volume trucks. Um, when the UHU for that, for that particular unit gets above a certain threshold, they will convert it to a 12-hour truck, hire extra crews, um, and, and make that happen. Now, mine is still a 12-hour truck because unit hour utilization is low, but we do so much posting, that's fatiguing as well. Um, so the system has flaws, but there are ways to make even a 24-hour shift um, manageable for the majority of, of workers. And we got another question. Go ahead and give us your name, sir. Tell us where you work and uh, hit us with your question. My name is Brandon. Um, I work for EMT of CBPH up in Plattsburgh. Mm-hmm. Um, I also volunteer with Morseville EMS. Uh, first, thank you guys for both being here. Um, I definitely enjoy listening to both of you speak. Who's the better speaker? Oh, never mind. Just go <laughs> ahead and ask you. Um, so you both, 
who has th- who has two thumbs and is the best speaker? This, this guy. guy. <laughs> <laughs> so you both travel the country uh, speaking at conferences similar to this. Um, I wanted to know, um, do you guys feel overall throughout the country that EMS is a progressive uh, field in our patient care? And what do you think some of the obstacles are to our field being more progressive? Yeah, I think that's a really, really great question. question. And, and it's, it's really cool that, to have the opportunity to visit different systems and go to different conferences. And, you know, really, I, I think EMS has come a long way, you know, from the days of using the car battery as a defibrillator. Remember those days? <laughs> I know you do. And, um, but I think when we think, of, you know, when we think about progression... You know, we are starting to see more and more things that paramedics are able to do. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they need to be doing them. Tomorrow, Kelly and I are going to debate, and uh, we love to have a debate here. And we're actually going to record that and make that uh, one of our shows, Kelly. And one of the things that we're going to debate is ultrasound in the field. Kelly and I have a different opinion about that. But now that we see the progression towards ultrasound in the field, there's, there's a pocket of individuals who believe that it's good for the career field. There's another pocket of individuals who believe that it's a waste of time and we're you know, delaying transport to the hospital because there's nothing we're going to be able to do with the information anyway. So I think that there is progression and it's exciting to see it, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's good for our field. I, I think if you attend an EMS conference, uh, and survey the majority of participants, you're, you're going to get a skewed view of, of EMS at a national level because we, we, let's not suffer from, from uh, selection bias here. The people that attend EMS conferences like the initial assessment conference and EMS Today and EMS Pro Expo in Connecticut and the Texas EMS conference, these people pay their own money, seek out uh, continued education, pay travel and lodging uh, costs to go to these conferences. They're the top 1% uh, of EMS providers in their region and around the country. Uh, the majority of EMS professionals either don't have the wherewithal to, to devote that kind of time and money to their education, or they don't have the motivation. Um, that's not necessarily a slap at those providers, but if you if you limit your discussion to only the people that are provide uh, that attend EMS conferences, oh yeah, very progressive, very progressive. Uh, but the average Joe sitting in a truck on a street corner somewhere, not so much, not so much. And we have to figure out how we reach those people. If you ever had any illusions about how progressive EMS as a profession is. Just read a Facebook comment thread on any EMS forum in social media, and you will want to end it all because you, you will you weep for the future of your profession. There are some good ones out there, but the, the, the floor of our profession is still fairly low. It needs to be higher. Now, how do we do that? I don't know. My personal opinion is, is that uh, degrees are one way to get oh. there. I'm not going to start that fight because Mr. Mr. Uh, I don't need a degree over here is going to get in a cat fight with me, and I'm going to slap him down. But um, join uh, us for the debate I, tomorrow. I, I, you know, I think degrees are one way to get there. Um, another way to get there is to implement a degree requirement for EMS educators. At least then, that the floor 
of EMS education. I think that's uh, a good by point. the quality of the of the of the instructors and professors will be raised quite a bit, uh, and you'll have you'll have a, a, a little better um, or at least a more uniform and higher floor for for where EMS education starts. But I I think I triggered Dan Batesy, so let's hear his question. Yeah, so, so Dan Batesy, first time caller, long time listener. Um, I, uh, I have a follow up to that question, and, okay. and uh, I find it very interesting because we're here uh, in, a, in a traditional setting of a bricks and mortar conference where mm -hmm. people come and sit in classes. But today we're also melding it with uh, a podcast. Yeah. And um, as I look to the future of progressive EMS, I think that a lot of folks are looking at uh, online and hybrid education. And I wonder what your thoughts are in terms of how, uh, what's the value of, of a conference like this, uh, and, and how do you think it fits in, in the growing model of EMS education? Well, <clears throat> I think that the why do, why do you get to go first? Because this is my wheelhouse, right, sucker. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think that, that the way we reach the current generation of EMS providers. I mean, millennials and Generation Z take so much flack for, um, you know, they're, they're glued to their phones and they're glued to social media and they don't read and they have no work ethic and all this kind of crap. And, and, and I live with a baby boomer who thinks that, that millennials are the bomb. And, and she's kind of made, she's opened my eyes to a lot of things. It, they're not necessarily any worse than the generation who came before. They just grew up in a different world and they process information, they seek information differently than we did. And if we're going to grow EMS conferences and continue these things to grow, we have to reach them uh, in a medium that they are used to. Podcasting, which is one great thing that, you know, we've, this is going Facebook Live right now. Um, we're doing this in a recorded podcast. Gone are the days when the EMS provider will sit and read a textbook or read a journal. Jim's is no longer a print magazine. They're an online journal. Uh, 15, 16 years ago, I was a member, uh, a founding editorial board member of, of the very first EMS online magazine called Pre-Hospital Perspectives. And, and it folded after a year, but... But we put a scare into places like EMS World and, and, and GEMS uh, and opened their eyes to, to what digital media, uh, what potential digital media had. And that is only expanding. I think it needs to continue to expand. Maybe, maybe we can convince Travis next year to live stream some of these things. And for the people that can't physically show up here at the Lake Placid Olympic Convention Center, um, maybe they can... can uh, uh, we can offer them a little foam ed and, and live stream some of our classes to people listening at home on their beanbag chair and their underwear eating Cheetos like a, like a real American should. You know, one of the things that I think is important when it comes to visiting with conferences is the networking, is the, you know, the friends, is the ability to, you know, gain, you know, I met Kelly Grayson for the first time at a conference. And I didn't like them then. You were teaching AMLS, and I thought you were, were a very... Um... Awesome instructor. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. But, you know, yeah, we'll but I think that. that that's the value. And I do think that we've got to come outside and think outside the box. As a matter of fact, you know, Kelly Grayson, myself, Travis, we're in the elevator uh, coming down here for a sound check. And one of the things that Kelly Grayson said was, 
I think I'm going to come up with a series of 17-minute, 20-minute TED Talks. Well, what if we do that on the conference level as well to be in a, you know, in a room like this mm-hmm. and have you know, five or six different instructors come out for 15 minutes just to talk about pathophysiology or just to talk about... So instead of getting into this whole hour-long discussion... We just do a 15, 20-minute overview of something or an experiences or stories or whatever that is. So I do think and I do agree that we've got to come up with different ways that we're able to make the um, conferences more exciting for people, especially within those generations. You know, and, and there are already conferences following that model. The, the SMAC conferences are, are small TED-type talks, and they're, they're really strong, uh, have a large social media footprint because they have clued into the fact that that's how we communicate today. And uh, the name of the conference forget, uh, escapes me right now, and I'm going to slap myself for forgetting it, uh, but it's the one put on by, by FlightBridge ED. Um, and, and it's there, Huh? Yeah, fast. Fast nineteen um, was was the last conference, and it's and it's that very thing. Uh, really strong social media president uh, presence and promotion, and and most of those are FOMED uh, uh, presentations, uh, 20, 25 minutes in length. TED talk, very focused, um, and in small bites, uh, and and it's a very popular conference. And I think that's a model that uh, a lot of other comp- conferences could uh, could stand to adopt. But, hey, that's what I think. You've heard what Chris thinks. Not that we care. We'd like to know what you think. Email us your comments, concerns, and questions at the show at ems1.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. And for myself, co-host Chris Ciballero, and all the wonderful participants and organizers of the Initial Assessment Conference, 10th anniversary, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We're going to catch you guys next week.